Good evening. You know, in the 2000 film Castaway, Tom Hanks plays Chuck Nolan, a time-obsessed systems analyst who travels worldwide resolving productivity problems for Federal Express. And while flying through a violent storm, his plane crashes into the Pacific Ocean. Now Chuck ends up washing up on the shore of an uninhabited island and has to find a way to survive. He is helped out by some of the packages from the plane crash that wash up on shore. He utilizes them in various ways. And one of those packages was a Wilson volleyball. And this volleyball, interestingly enough, becomes Tom Hanks's constant companion. He at one point picks it up and throws it after cutting his hand and it leaves a, a bloody handprint on the volleyball. He takes it and he draws a face in the blood. He names the volleyball Wilson. And as I said, for his entire time there on the island, this volleyball is his best buddy. One of the sadder parts of the movie is when Tom Hanks, Chuck Nolan, decides that he is going to try to get off the island and so he makes a makeshift raft and as he is out in the middle of the ocean trying to find someone to rescue him, Wilson comes loose from his perch on the raft and begins floating off into the distance. And Tom Hanks is yelling and crying as he sees his best buddy float away. You know, we are all social beings, some of us more than others, but deep within us is a need to be around other people. Social scientists have even stated that people will create friends even if there's not one around. Do you ever have an imaginary friend as a kid? You know, there's a longing within us, a void that can only be filled in relationship. No man is an island. We all need friends. We all need relationships. The church is a sense of community that specializes in relationships. From her humble beginnings, we see that she functioned as the first social network where members shared their praises and their possessions and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Speaking of social networks, I know many of you utilize Facebook as a tool for keeping up with friends and getting information out in mass. And those of you who have a Facebook account know that you can uh, actually list under your personal information your relationship status. And under the heading of relationship, a person can choose from the following options. Single, in a relationship, engaged, married, widowed, separated, divorced, in a domestic partnership, in an open relationship, in a civil union, or it's complicated. It seems that Facebook has covered all the, the, the bases or the, the, the major headings when it comes to a relationship status. And with the click and drag of a mouse, one can let the cyber world know the status of their love life. And this got me to thinking, how would some of us define our relationship with God? If we were being totally honest, how would we define it? Maybe not using all the options that Facebook has listed, but just a few of the more common ones. Are you married to God? Do you feel like the relationship is going well and that you're as close to Him as, as you can be? Maybe it's complicated. Maybe because of trial and tribulation, maybe because of disappointment, you've pulled away from God a little bit. Maybe the, the relationship is on thin ice. Maybe you've divorced God. 
Maybe you've decided that you'd rather return to your old sinful life and that this life really is too restrictive, is not worth it. Or maybe you're in the single category. Maybe you've never had a relationship with God and maybe you've contemplated it, you just haven't gone and fully invested. I want to talk to that group tonight. Throughout this series, we're going to talk to each group, but I want to talk to the single group tonight, not to demean you or shame you or guilt you into a relationship. I just want your ears and your heart this evening as I attempt to convince you that the single life in a spiritual sense is a dead end. You know, in the realm of relationships, we see it all the time. People choosing the single life because they don't want to be tied down. They want to be free to go out and to have a good time without having to answer to anyone. They don't want the restraints of a monogamous relationship. They desire the, the single and ready to, be, uh, ready to mingle lifestyle. The single life is often associated with unrestrained fun. Do what you want to do. Don't have to answer to anyone. Date if you want to date. Don't date if you don't want to date. Date multiple people if you want to. Anything goes in the single life. And as a result, the single life is very appealing for many especially young people. In contrast, the married life is often associated with no fun. I mean, guys, how many of your friends tried to talk you out of getting married? When you told them that you, you were engaged and you were going to marry the love of your life, how many of them said, why would you want to do that? <laughs> why, why, why do you want to tie yourself down? I mean, you know, marriage gets a bad rap in our culture, right? We talk about the old ball and chain or, or how marriage is a prison. And, you know, we, we, we talk about, you know, marriage as if it's something restrictive and all the fun is over and, and it's boring and mundane. The Christian life is often seen this way as well. Why would you want to go and marry God? Why would you want a, a, a life of discipleship? It's just a bunch of thou shalt nots that, that translates into no fun at all. The single life, of course, allows me the freedom to do what I want to do when I, when I want to do it. I don't have to answer to anyone. I'm my own person. And in a world dedicated to selfishness, it's easy to see how this mindset persists. However, there is a fatal flaw in this type of mentality. It's the reality that no one is truly single. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians of their former life. You see, they used to be single. Before they received salvation and entered into a relationship with Christ, they were on their own. But being single wasn't all that was cracked up to be, because notice the language Paul uses. They were dead in their sins. They were by nature children of wrath. They formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. They indulged the flesh and the mind, which is certainly appealing. That's what the single life is all about, living free from restraint and indulging the desires of the flesh. And there are many folks who prefer this lifestyle for that very reason, because they don't want to deny themselves any earthly pleasure. But the critical thing to note here is that while the single life may have a certain appeal on the surface, it is a life void of meaning and fulfillment. It's really no life at all, for Paul says that those who live life on their own terms are dead. They're dead in their trespasses. To live the single life is to be a dead man walking. You may enjoy the spoils of instant gratification, but you lose the reward of heaven. And for some, that's a worthy trade-off, to be honest. I mean, there are some who don't struggle with sin. 
We talk about people struggling with sin. Not everybody does. Some people are quite happy with sin. They embrace it. They choose it. They prefer it. The appeal of sin is much more attractive than the allure of spiritual marriage. What they don't fully understand, though, is that the single life is not a truly free life to begin with. You are never truly untethered. Even the one who chooses a life without God is still in a relationship. We are all ruled in some way or another. The person who arrogantly states, no one owns me, I don't answer to anybody. They're sadly mistaken because no one is truly single. Everyone is in a relationship with something. Without God, sin reigns and sin enslaves. It binds us and restricts us. The single life is not without its constraints. In fact, it is more binding and more burdensome than any life we could ever know. Consider a passage that we've probably read over many times, 1 John chapter 1. In beginning of verse 5, it reads like this. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The single life is a life of darkness. To walk in the light is to have a relationship with the Lord. The light is where we have fellowship with Him. To live in darkness is to live apart from God. There is no fellowship with the Lord in darkness. I mean, who would choose to live life in the dark? Even still, who would want to live eternally separated from the Father? You know, the single life is often associated with youth and immaturity. When you were in high school or college, your parents may have even advised you not to tie yourself down. Don't, don't let a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend hold you back, they may have said. The point is that you've got your whole life ahead of you. Focus on other things, whether it be schoolwork or athletics or whatever, because a relationship can be a distraction to those things. There's time for a, a serious commitment later, and as we grow, there comes a time when settling down seems to be a more natural thing. The single life has run its course, and it's time to start moving toward marriage and family. Some, of course, never grow up. They never settle down. Some never find that special someone to settle down with. But the single life will eventually lose its luster for most. There are certain things that cannot be experienced apart from a relationship with God. Namely, peace, joy, provision, and salvation. Our culture claims to be able to deliver these things. They market it as the American dream. And what is the American dream? Well, it's a little different for everyone, but generally speaking, it's beautiful women at your disposal, incredible wealth, a mansion, a tricked-out ride, diamonds and pearls, fame and fortune, the best of everything, a lifestyle of extravagance. It's the Hugh Hefner way of life. That's the life that many aspire to. And that's the life that Solomon had. It wasn't exactly the single life, not with 700 wives and 300 concubines, but it was a dream life nonetheless, at least by modern-day standards. Solomon had wealth, he had power, he had fame, he had the palace, he had virtually anything and everything at his disposal, and yet Solomon repeatedly spoke of the futility of such a lifestyle. In chapter 1 and verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, he writes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word for vanity in this passage is the Hebrew word havel. It means meaninglessness, emptiness, or futility. And Solomon goes on to discuss the meaninglessness of living a life attached to stuff and detached from God. 
chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, in verse 1 and following, it reads, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made, my, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. Behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun." The wisest of the wise came to the starting, startling conclusion that living a life without God was not a life worth living. You want the so-called American dream? Then understand that it comes with a great price. Solomon was not really single, and neither are you. We all submit to something. So why not submit to something that pays eternal dividends? You know, as he ate breakfast on the morning of November the 22nd, 1963, in the peak of his life, John F. Kennedy never imagined what would happen to him later that day. Thousands of people showed up for work on Tuesday morning, September the 11th, 2001, at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon with absolutely no clue what awaited them that day. There was once a young man who grew up in a broken home. His dad left him and his mother when he was very small. His mom died and he ended up living in an old railroad boxcar. He washed dishes to earn enough money to scrape by. He had no friends. He was looked down upon by society. He had experienced very little love, honor, or respect. He had very little in the way of possessions. When he was 20 years old, he died of brain cancer. At the funeral, the preacher was assigned the task of saying a few words on his behalf. And the preacher talked of Solomon and, and how he had all that the world desired. The preacher pointed out that this deceased young man had none of those things, that his life paled in comparison. But in the end, he found the most precious thing he could ever attain, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. And because that young man clothed himself in Christ before he died, he was assured a mansion over the hilltop and all the riches of eternity. He may not have lived a long, rich, and bountiful life here on earth, but none of those things mattered. What mattered is that he had Christ. You know, the moment you become a child of God, your life becomes a success. How you build your life from that moment on will determine whether you continue to be successful or not. You can build your life on empty things. You can choose to be single and to live life on your own terms, but you will never find meaning and fulfillment until you enter into a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And you will never know the eternal reward that comes 
from giving your life to Him. Be a success starting today by choosing to live for Christ. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for who you're making us to be. May we always seek a relationship with you. May we always seek to make that relationship deeper and stronger. May we be people who seek to live out your will and your mission in the world. May we be sons and daughters who make their father proud. We love you, God, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.